Welcome to another podcast by InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley, joined by Ross Martin and Greg Barnes. And Greg, we talked a little bit uh, off the air about what we were going to talk about, as we always do. And I don't want to say this is a big game for North Carolina. A, because Buck will give me a hard time. B, because we're way beyond that. But it really is when you look at the history of North Carolina football and what this season is staring down in terms of losses. Your take on that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the fact that some people will look at it and say, well, a losing season is a losing season. It doesn't matter how you spin it. Um, that's a, a negative notation. But I think you know, if you look back at 2014, for example, North Carolina had a losing season. It was the first losing season that Larry Fedora has ever had. But you look at it and say, well, you know, they had one of the worst defenses in school history. They did finish the season with a 500 record. They were eligible for a bowl game. And so you can kind of pull some positives out of that. And a lot of people make a big deal about, you know, Notre Dame last year. They went 4-8. and It's kind of a disaster. But you're talking about, okay, well, you start looking at how they lost some games, a lot of very close losses. You say, well, if they just fix a few things, all of a sudden that 4-8 and becomes 8-4. It's not that drastic a situation. And then Brian Kelly still had to go and make a lot of deals, a lot of changes in the offseason. You look at the schedule, this team is not going to a bowl game. And there are only a couple of games left that they can actually win. I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't see them being very competitive with Virginia Tech. I don't see them being too competitive with Miami. The NC State has a better team this year. Um, that's a rivalry game, so you know, North Carolina could play above its head and you know, possibly win. So that right there, we're talking 1-8. and eight. So if North Carolina could somehow beat Virginia, which is a team that a lot of people assume would be an easy win for them to start the season, but now you're talking about a you know, a field goal difference in terms of the betting spread, then you take care of Western Carolina. You know, everybody expects UNC to do pretty easily. And then you have the game at Pitt. Well, if you can beat Virginia at home, and you can go on the road and you can win at Pitt on a Thursday night, and you can beat Western Carolina, then people say, okay, well, you know, they struggled the first half of the year. They had a, somewhat of a tough schedule. All these injuries. They went 4-8. You know, not terrible. But I think if you lose to Virginia, and then you go on the road and you lose at Pitt, now you're looking at 10-2, and two, or excuse me, 2-10. and 10, And North Carolina, in the history of the program, and granted they've only been playing double-digit games for the you know, last 50 years, they've only done that, lost double-digit games three times and everybody who, who's a fan of the program and is familiar with the program knows what happened when Mac Brown took over and you know, one in 10 first two years when he cleans house and has to make a complete culture change you kind of give him a pass after you see what he does starting with year three and moving forward and then Bunning goes two and ten I guess in 03 his third year and that was kind of a dead man walking situation. Now, I don't think Larry Fedora is in any type of situation like that. Uh, he's safe for, you know, I think, a couple of years. That's never really been in doubt this year. That's been the word throughout the offseason. Um, but if you have a 2-10 a blemish on your resume, 
that's hard to overcome. And that's something that I think recruiters proposing teams will, will grab onto. Detractors in the fan base will say, how in the world do you go 2-10 and 10 against anybody, especially when an FCS team is one of those wins? And I just, I just think winning some of the games that you can potentially win is critical for Larry this year. So every win he can add is beneficial. And I think a Virginia win uh, qualifies there, even though that is, is going to be a tough game. But I think it's very important for him to show that, hey, we're still battling. We're still being competitive. We can still win a couple of these games if everything goes right for us. Ross, your take around campus. I mean, I always ask you to lead off our WCHL tailgate shows, the mood on campus. With Notre Dame in town last weekend, which what what should have been a huge game, from what I saw, pretty dead. And when campus is dead, the student section's bad, apathy sets in because the folks that have to drive to the games. I mean, your take on what's going on and whether Virginia changes that, uh, a win against Virginia will change that at all. Yeah, I mean, I want to make it clear that I'm not a student, so I'm not on campus. Like you make it seem sometimes, but you're young, um, though. You're young. <laughs> yeah, I'm not hanging out in Morrison dorm or anything. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean the student section was awful against Notre Dame, and I sent a tweet out pretty early in the game saying that this is an awful crowd for for such a, for a student section crowd for for such a huge game, you know, number twenty one team. You know, it wasn't exactly the best weather, but it was at the beginning of the game. It was it was decent weather. You know, it's it's it wasn't fall break or anything. There was no excuse not to have that place packed for, for Notre Dame. And, you know, this is the constant struggle that we have with, with UNC and the football attendance. It just, it just needs to be better, but you know, it's hard to support a team that you expect to lose. And that's kind of the vibe around the program right now. So it's not great. And, you know, obviously there's only two home games left, which kind of onto Greg's point makes this Virginia game, more important, I think, you know, if you close out with two home wins, meaning Virginia and Western Carolina, that's a, a, a big positive you can kind of build on, at least for the fans. Having something positive to cheer on in Keyan Stadium, I think, is big. And, you know, on paper, obviously, we thought UNC was going to be better entering the season. We probably thought Virginia was going to be not as good as they are entering the season. And now we're at a place where Virginia is favored at home, uh, even though UNC has beat them seven straight and Fedora has never lost to the Cavaliers. So, I mean, a win would be, I mean, it's, it goes off saying, but a win would be a, a great thing just for the fan base to kind of get them a little bit of hope uh, as we enter the last half of the season. And then um, and obviously with the, the Catamounts coming in town later on, be big. But, um, I mean, Virginia's playing well. I'm, I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit later in the podcast. It's going to be a tough battle for the Heels. Greg, as far as the fan base and changes that are made, you mentioned Notre Dame and other schools, and Carolina's done it too. I mean, how much does that play into the powers that be? I mean, an empty Keenan Stadium is not good for the pocketbook. Granted, most of those tickets are already sold anyway, but how much does that matter, do you think? How much pressure does that put on the situation, you know, when – Keenan Stadium against the Notre Dame's like it is when every other time Notre Dame's been around pretty much anywhere is packed. I mean, does that matter to the powers that be maybe more so than the wins and losses? They certainly dovetail together though. Your take. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's more of a matter of the, the bottom line. When Bubba Cunningham first showed up and uh, 
the fall of, of 2011, I guess it was about October, uh, I was able to sit down with him in his office and we talked about a lot of different things and talking about, you know, how you go about hiring coaches, talked about kind of the marketing aspect because one of the things that he was known for coming both from uh, Tulsa and coming from Notre Dame is this this ability to get unique with your marketing, uh, to have all these different type of promotions to get people to come to games. And I brought that up to him, and his response was, you know, to be honest, it, it really just comes down to wins and losses. If you win enough games, people are going to come because they want to come and see it. They want to come see a, a good team play. They want to be proud of a good team. Now, things have, have shifted a good bit over the last you know, 10 to 15 years in the form of you know, we all have you know, multiple sports channels we can watch. We all have you know, big flat screen TVs that are pretty cheap nowadays that we can just sit in the comfort of our own home and watch games. And if we don't like how games going, we can turn the channel. So that clearly has affected attendance across the country. But in terms of your diehards, you still want to give them an opportunity to come and cheer for a good team. And that brings concessions into play, that brings parking into play, all these different cost structures that fund your athletic department. And so I think at the end of the day, that's the most important part is what can we do to make sure the bottom line is, is healthy? And by, if you start there, then you say, okay, well, we have to keep our fan base and our donors happy. That's not, you know, that's not a far stretch to say those two kind of go hand in hand. And so at that point, you've got to try to figure out, okay, how big of a deal is a, a losing season? Is the fan base, are, are they engaged enough to say, well, this is a rebuilding year to begin with, which nobody likes to hear. But then when you add in all these injuries, the likelihood of going to a bowl game is really kind of thrown out the window. So while a lot of people can appreciate that and understand that, other portions of the fan base may not be able to or may not be willing to. And so you have to make that decision of, okay, how much needs to be done to make sure that that negative group, the detractors, if you will, don't become this, this very large majority? Because I think that's what happened with Bunny toward the end there. Uh, after, you know, even though they showed promise in 2004, things didn't get better dramatically in 05 and 06. And, you know, by the time you got a couple games in 06, you knew that he was on his way out because so many of the, the fans were just ready to have him gone. Fedora's nowhere near that level right now. We're a long way from that. But that's kind of what you're trying to pay attention to when you're in the administration and you're one of these powers that be. You've got to try to gauge that and to see if you have to make changes in the offseason to address some of those concerns. Ross, we've talked about you know, losing records, and they're never good, but one saving grace that John Bunning had in his losing records is he usually beat North Carolina State and he usually beat Duke. And Virginia, to a lot of the old school crowd, and certainly to the region, is a big rivalry for North Carolina. Um, and Larry Fedora struggled in the State-Duke matchup, Wake and East Carolina, if you want to throw those in, but he's won this Virginia one. So how important is it Fedora to finish the season strong, but even if they lose all of them, to beat the rivalry teams, Virginia, North Carolina, State? I mean, at this point, I don't know if 
if beating Virginia is going to have any sort of mag- uh, magnificent change on the season. I think just getting wins anywhere they can, you know, one or two wins to close out the year. Virginia, Pitt, Western Carolina being the, the two most likely opportunities is just where they have to focus and put all the effort into just putting the best performance they can on the field. And that home game is a little bit more important because you have the home crowd there. I'll add this to kind of talk to what Greg was saying about, you know, obviously winning is what brings people to the games. That's what they want to see. That's what excites the fan base. But even when UNC has been really good under Fedora, the stadium has an impact. You know, the 2015 season, it was, it was never packed, packed. Like it has, it look it was under some butch seasons, and even last year it wasn't. You know, the pit game I remember it wasn't packed, and they were those were exciting, fun teams. There's always going to be this culture issue issue with UNC. It's not just the winning; it's a lot of other things working against UNC to pack the stadium. They not only have to win, they have to convince people to come. You know, get away from the the house, ignore the vacations and the kids' soccer games and all those things to get into the stadium. So. You know, this is an issue we've talked about. I'm sure you all have talked about on the podcast before. I've gone back and forth on message boards and on Twitter about attendance. Uh, it's an issue that UNC fans um, and the program are fighting, are always going to be fighting. I think we'll always fight unless for some reason they have a consistent winner for, you know, a significant amount of time. I'm thinking four, five, six seasons of, you know, eight wins. That kind of consistency is what they need to kind of completely flip this culture and, and build fans who are younger, who graduate and come back and buy season tickets and, and eventually bring their kids. That's the kind of generational flip they need. And I thought, you know, Fedora could build on that 2015 season, 16 season, but obviously this dip has, has really got some, some fans kind of perturbed about what's going on. But, um, you know, we could talk for hours about attendance, so I'll just leave it there. Yeah. And Tommy, it's kind of two parts to that. One, when you, when you talk about how Fedora has fared against the in-state schools, so we're talking East Carolina, Wake Forest, Duke, NC State. He's 7-9 right now against that, that quartet. Um, and he's going to be a, a pretty significant underdog in the next game. So 7-10 you know, is, is not unlikely by the end of his sixth year. And I do agree with you that a lot of fans pay attention to that. And that means a lot, and especially when some of these games against ECU, you're just embarrassed. And some of these games against NC State, you're embarrassed. Now, I think we should say that you know, Duke was bad for a long, long time, and John Bunning benefited from that. And I think it's fair to say Mac Brown benefited from that. But Cutcliffe has his Duke program playing a lot better than they you know, did 10 years ago. They still are not an elite program by any stretch. And, and state's always kind of been you know, hit or miss. But uh, that being said, you have that component of it, which I understand why fans you know, harp on that and stress about that. The other thing, to Ross's point, I mean, we're two years removed from North Carolina playing for the ACC championship. Tommy, how many times has that happened in your lifetime that you can remember, that they had a legitimate shot, they were one game away from winning the ACC title? You probably count with uh, one hand, right? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, the last time they won it was in, what, 80? Yeah. I was actually alive then. Don't really remember it. Remember some of those Clemson games way back then. And they they were a Ron Cherry bad call against Virginia Tech away from being in the conversation there a couple of years ago. Yeah, but right. 2015 was different, very different than anything that 
most North Carolina fans in my age bracket. I would say that's the you know the forty to sixty age range. Two thousand fifteen was what everybody had been waiting for. Let me jump in here real quick, Greg. It's almost like the two thousand fifteen season upped the standard so much for Fedora that now he's being killed for just not being as close to as good as he was that year. He was so good in 2015. The offense was so good that year and 2016 that anything below that's going to going to enrage the fan base. Now that's exactly right, and uh, you know, we knew it while we were watching it play out. Because like, I mean, let's go back to 13 for for a second. Start the start the season one and five. We we write an article and post it saying, "Yeah, they're one and five, but the way the schedule breaks, they easily could get to a bowl game." And we got just excoriated for it. Ah, oh, what are you talking about? They're one and five. There's no way they're going to a bowl game. But when you actually looked at what happened, it made sense. And in 2015, when you look back, he's okay. Well, they had a very easy schedule. They were incredibly healthy, and so everything broke their way. And once they got to the postseason, you saw you know some better teams and and Clemson and Baylor. You kind of saw the difference between the elite and where North Carolina was. So even though they were 11-3, and three, it wasn't like they were some elite team. But then you go to last year, and even before the season, most people, especially people that are, are heavy in advanced metrics, were saying North Carolina could have a better team but still only win maybe nine games. Yet they go 8-5, and five, and it's considered this huge disappointment of a year. And so I think that, that kind of puts stress on this year to be better, to kind of make amends for last year, even though last year really wasn't much of a down year. And, of course, I understand they lost the state and Duke there at the end. So just it's very interesting how these kind of dynamics work. But the fact that we're two years away from them playing for the ACC title and from winning 11 games, that people are so up in arms about what's taking place, it's, uh, it just kind of speaks to the, the, the short memory that, that we all have in sports these days. And I think because of that season and success last season, even though last season was probably a little disappointing overall, you know, I think Buck posted on this on the uh, premium board today. This this whole year is kind of like a wash. You know, I think everyone in some way kind of gets a pass given all the real, I mean, the real excuses that are at hand with the injuries. There's so much. I mean, every player, a lot of the players we thought to be who are going to be the stars are going to step up are gone. Andre Smith, William Sweet, Austin Prohl, Thomas Jackson, maybe Donnie Miles. You know, the guys that we expected to be the stars of this team are injured. And people want this team to somehow, you know, be miraculous. And, and, and the truth is other teams have good players who can play Division One football. And, and if you're taking UNC's C and B level players against another team, no matter who it is, Virginia, Georgia Tech, Duke State, you know, those players are going to are going to beat these younger players, you know, every time. And so that's why this year is just it's just it's just like an outlier. And it has to be treated that way and kind of next year look back and, and regroup next year for, for what could be a better season when healthy. When we come back from the break, we'll talk a little bit about Virginia. I'll say this as we go to break. There are some issues that this North Carolina team has and has shown. Jason and Buck and I discussed it earlier in the week that for Diehard fans make it a little more concerning than injury-laden losses, but we've rehashed that, and I'm sure we'll talk about it again as the season progresses. But let's go to break. We'll come back and talk a little bit about Virginia. 
Greg, I'm going to go to you about this ball game. Now, Donnie Miles is certainly out for this game, likely out for the rest of the year, not well known yet, but what does Carolina do on the back end of the defense now against a Virginia team that has been pretty effective throwing the ball in Bronco Mendenhall's, what, second year now? Yep. Well, I think J.K. Brett's probably going to be the guy that, that fills in. He stepped in for Donnie after Donnie got hurt on Saturday against Notre Dame. And so you're going to have a little bit younger guys, less experienced guys having to play, but that's kind of been the, the case all year long. I, I assume you'll see the nickel package quite a bit. And you'll see Cole Holcomb and, and Casey Collins there at the linebackers. And so when you do that, you know, you'll have to bring in Miles Wolfolk and with Britt in the back line there because Virginia likes to run so many plays. I mean, they, they like the up-tempo style, averaging about 77 plays per game. That's going to put some more stress on on the defense, and so they've got to make sure that they're they're solid in their scheme. Uh, they've got to prevent the explosive play. They've been solid up front, but this is one of those offenses that uh, really likes to capitalize on kind of the short passes, not too dissimilar from what Fedora likes to do in terms of hitting on those those quick hits, uh, with the idea of you know short passes, long gains. Fortunately, Virginia doesn't have a lot of explosive playmakers at wide receiver, so you don't have to worry as much about getting burned uh, in big play situations, but you've still got to limit that. You've got to make Virginia march down the field and score their points that way. And so it's going to be important for Miles, Dorn, uh, and Brett, and whoever else is back there, to really be cognizant of where they are and to make sure nobody gets behind them. Ross, your take on the defensive side. I think Jalen Dalton, I don't – if my memory – he played against Notre Dame, but I don't remember him doing much. I think against a team like Virginia, he needs to be effective. Your take on the, the front four against the Wahoos. Yeah, and the pass rush is going to be a, a big deal, like it, like it's been in, in previous games. I think we've seen some positive things from Malik Carney. Uh, yeah, and Jalen Dalton needs to get back in his groove, come back from an injury. He did play against Notre Dame, but, yeah, you're right. I didn't really hear his name at all. Do you remember – um, Aaron Crawford making some plays against the run game and getting some push up front. I mean, and, you know, seeing guys like Tyrone Hopper get a little more time, uh, Dewan Drennan as well. So they're going to need a big game as well. Uh, and also, I mean, I think this, we talked to Fedora on Monday, and I think he, his positives takeaway was that Case and Collins is, is kind of finally playing to expectations in terms of what he can bring physically. He's um, more familiar and aware of where he needs to be playing looser, allowing his speed and quickness and length to to show, and he's been able to make some plays. I think he set a career high in tackles against Georgia Tech and then uh, did that again with a higher mark against Notre Dame, so that's good to see. Also, Miles uh, Dorn had the two interceptions. That's got to be a confidence boost, kind of being more comfortable in your reads and, and knowing where you're be, and just you know seeing the ball go into your hands and making plays is always good to happen. So those are some positives to take away from from that side of the ball as well. Yeah, I mean they're gonna. <laughs> I hope goes without saying they have to make plays and step up because you know they're gonna be be on the field a long time because with the three three and outs, this UNC offense has become known for for doing. They have to get more possessions and get the ball back to the offense as much as possible. Greg, that being said, do you think? Anything will change with Carolina's offense as far as a schematic or play calling, given what Fedora said on Monday? Uh, that's, that's a good question, Tommy. I, I don't think so at this point. 
I think you, you've pared down your midway through the season. Uh, you've got so many young, inexperienced guys playing. You're just trying to get them wrapped in what they know. Um, you know because what happens in the season is that the ones and the twos take, I mean, I would say probably 95% of the snaps. And so in training camp, all these guys are getting reps. But once you get into the season, you're very limited with how much exposure they get. And so when you're you're a guy that's on the third team and you're really working with the scout team, and now three weeks into the season, you're called up and you're starting to get reps again, you can't all of a sudden say, well, we're going to completely change what we're doing here and you need to learn this. Uh, you just kind of have to double down on what you know, what you taught them in training camp, even though you know, the team is completely different than what it was at that point in time. And so I, I don't think you're really allowed the opportunity to get so creative. But I think you kind of have to stick with what you know. I do think we all know that they have got to be able to run the ball. They've got to. And I understand that the jet sweeps and the bubble screens are, are part of their run package. But if you can't line up and knock back the defensive line on occasion and win some of those battles at the line of scrimmage, you're never going to have success. And I think for them to have you know, really any improvement the rest of the year and to really help Chas Surratt the rest of the year, you've got to make a concerted effort of saying, okay, you know what? If our five offensive linemen are not getting it done, we've got to you know, either attach the tight end or we've got to use him really in that H-back role as more of a fullback. So now you've got six blockers consistently. And you have to be able to run the ball some that way. And, and working into your zone concepts, however it may be. Uh, I, I think more than anything, that's the critical component. And if you can do that and you can find some success running the ball, even if it's Chaz running the ball, you know, even it doesn't have to be just running backs, even though that, that's a critical component, then all of a sudden some of your passing schemes open up and you're not having to throw you know, on third and eight because you're never going to have a lot of success doing that. That would take a lot of pressure off Chaz as well. So I, I think a focus has got to be dedicated there, and I think we'll probably see that moving forward. Uh, but I don't think any any other schematic changes are, are ahead of us right now. Ross, your take on, as we wrap this show up, your take on where Chaz Surratt is. He, he struggled, and it's got to be tough on a redshirt freshman to come in. You're getting all this playing time. You're not having much success. How do you think he plays against Virginia? What you got with him is, you know, a guy is still working through everything in terms of getting the calls right, getting people in place, running the pace of the offense the way the coaches want it, you know, making the right reads on RPOs. And he's doing that with a patchwork offensive line, and, and he's down, you know, maybe the top three receivers he expected to have. And uh, with a running game that's, that hasn't been nearly where it should have been or we thought it could be. And so everything is going against him. You know, Greg and I were talking in the press box that, uh, you know, he, he might have some issues making all the throws, something that Mitch never had. And, and he doesn't have that running ability that Marquise had. So it's just, it's not the full package right now, but I mean, he's a redshirt freshman. So what do you really want to expect? You know, I, I'd like to see him run a little bit more. I, I think that's just a, a, an easy way to, to pick up some chunk yards when he has the opportunity. The, the down-the-field passing game doesn't seem to be that productive. You know, a lot of lateral stuff like we've talked about in terms of just, you know, 
screens and, and pass into the backfield to Jordan Brown. Those have been okay, but obviously defenses have been good. Defenses have been ready for that because UNC's become kind of one dimensional. So, you know, I, 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 we were at practice today, Tuesday, and I don't know if it was the end of it was the end of the practice, but they were giving extra reps to Brandon Harris and Nathan Elliott. So, and Surratt wasn't wasn't getting the reps. So, I'm not sure what that means. Maybe Surratt was, you know, done with his reps. He got all the reps during the actual regular part of practice. And just for that, for those five minutes that we saw, Harris was getting some time with the first team and, and Elliot was working with the second team. So I don't know if that's a, a precursor to what we could see uh, later in the season to just see if this team can get any, any sort of life from those two quarterbacks. It may just be a chance to get some extra reps. And additionally, kind of off topic here, just to report this, Jordan Riley was at practice in, in full pads on uh, on Tuesday. You know, he was missing during the Notre Dame game. Greg reported that uh, in the pregame. And we did not see Donnie Miles on the field as well. So those are two names that we're kind of looking for. Um, so we want to get that news out to our listeners. Great way to end the show, man. I appreciate you answering my tough questions with such expertise. Ross, we'll talk to you again on Saturday for the Inside Carolina WCHL Tailgate Show. Greg, I'll talk to you again with Jason Staples on Thursday. That'll do it for this episode, though, boys. Thanks for joining me. See you, Tommy. Thanks for listening to InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting.